Find out on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Some kind of love I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Due to a very severe cold that makes it difficult for me to talk, this week I am playing back some key interviews I did with Ron Paul, market analyst Bob Hoy, Robert Prechter, Ian Gordon, Dr. Larry Parks, and investor Eric Spratt. I hope you enjoy and profit from these interviews. I will be right back with Congressman Paul in just one minute. Don't go away. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. 
That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to jtaylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm delighted to tell you that my guest today is Congressman Ron Paul. After what I think was a very successful bid for the presidency, I don't think Ron Paul needs any real introduction from me, but to give some of you who may not know Ron all that well just a little bit of his background, let me just say that he's a 10-term congressman from Texas. I guess there's nothing unusual about that. Uh, He is a physician who delivered some 4,000 human beings into the world. I think that's quite unusual because most congressmen come to Washington by way of the legal profession. But I think the most unusual aspect of Congressman Paul is that he takes his oath of office to uphold the Constitution perhaps more seriously than anyone else in Washington. Always before deciding whether or not to vote for a bill, Ron asks himself whether or not it is constitutional to do so. If it is not constitutional, that's the end of the story. He won't vote for it. His reverence for the Constitution is no doubt why Judge Napolitano called Ron, and I quote the Thomas Jefferson of our day, but I think the New York Post summed up Ron's uniqueness best when it said, Ron Paul is a politician who cannot be bought by special interests. Welcome, Ron, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, Thank you, Jay. Good to be with you. Uh, Dr. Paul, this show is really about trying to identify the real causes of America's economic malaise and and then finding solutions to help individuals uh, protect their wealth and increase it if possible. And then also, though, from a bigger picture, trying to find ways that America can get back onto its uh, back to its constitutional roots, which I know is a very, a very big concern of yours. But before we get to those issues, I just want to thank you for running for president. I don't know how many people that I was surprised to learn were voting for you or said they were, and they were going to, even though it meant they had to write your name in, uh, my wife, uh, uh, the wife of a banker friend of mine, for example, a Jewish-Russian immigrant who works with my wife at a major financial institution in New York, said that he is was voting for you, and he saw a lot of dangers that uh, that he recognized from his days in Russia, creeping mm-hmm. into our into our uh, political environment. A college kid down the block from where I live had a Ron Paul sign in front of his house, and my son's roommate uh, at St. John's College in Annapolis, who I thought was somewhere left of Karl Marx was a, a real big supporter of yours. So I think that you have given us a hope of returning to the values that made America great. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. I appreciate we... that very much. I think that makes a point that the Constitution brings us together, whether we consider ourselves left or right, and that's what I think is so neat about our our system, except we're disappointed that we don't follow it. Yeah, indeed. Uh, before we get to the real issues, um, uh, of you know the central central issues that this program is involved with, I just want to ask you. Well, how do you feel about your presidential bid? Well, I feel I feel good about it, uh, but uh, it, it's sort of a mixed feeling because uh, a lot of people were, uh, you know, upset that I just didn't continue in the process and do it as an independent. Uh-huh. There's always always some enthusiasm. You can't satisfy everybody's enthusiasm. Uh-huh. And there were shortcomings in the campaign that was uh, my fault and others. But overall, I think I was utterly shocked, just as you were sort of expressing yeah. surprise. Some people uh, gave support that you never would have dreamed of. That made me feel very good that uh, a lot of people would tell me that they had never been involved in politics before, never voted before, 
and they didn't trust anybody. And uh, so I think uh, that was exciting. But probably the most interesting is the fact that the young people are still interested. Young people still come to Washington. They'll come to see me, and I'm invited to campuses all the time. So that gives me hope for the future because the young people are willing to, to look at the problems and maybe do something about it. The people locked in the system, I, I don't expect a whole lot to happen. And mm-hmm. People that are in Washington right now, they've created this mess, so I don't expect them to solve it. Indeed. Uh, I mean, the fact that there are so many young people, uh, I would say the fact that you're not so easy to get a hold of anymore, Ron, and talk to, we used to talk to you, Al Corlin and I, almost every other week, and I think I take it as a good sign that, that you're very difficult to get a hold of, it, that you're on national television frequently, and that the word is getting out there. I think you have uh, begun an educational process that is essential to our country if we are going to get back to the, to the very basic values that made us strong and the freedom that allows us to to be who who God has created us to be or, or with our individual talents and so forth. Well, let's jump into more of the, the basic issues of what this program is about. Uh, first of all, we hear comparisons these days about our current recession. Some people are even suggesting that it is, in fact, a lot of mainstream people are suggesting that uh, what we're going through or what we're entering into could be as bad or even worse than the Great Depression. Do you think that is overstating our current crisis? No, I don't. I think that we're barely into it, and I think the bubble was bigger than ever, and it's probably something the world has never faced before because we had a single fiat currency, the dollar, that had the privilege of uh, inflating for many, many decades, and it was used as the reserve currency. And so, therefore, uh, we affected the whole world and uh, caused so many dislocations. So if other countries took our dollars and believed that they were very rich and used uh, that as their reserves, they then inflated. In many ways, uh, China is as vulnerable as we are, although they worked hard, produced goods and services, and they saved a lot of money, uh, but but they got paid in paper. So that's worldwide, and that system has collapsed. I think the post-Bretton uh, Woods system that you know started in 1971 when Bretton Woods broke down, I think that system is done. I don't think they can repair it. They're pretending that they can. The dollar, uh, which has been used before, is still used, and people are clinging to the dollar. But uh, the financial system that uh, it was based on, it's gone and I believe that the dollar will go to at this rate unless something is done radically to change it and to uh, and to restore confidence in the in the dollar. But for now, uh, it's it's limping along. But I think uh, uh, the debt has not been liquidated. The malinvestment has not been liquidated. We're doing all the things that uh, we did in uh, in the depression time to delay the correction. We don't believe in free markets liquidating bad debt. Uh, we just prop it up, and uh, I think we're destined to the story of the dollar. I mean, just look at the trillions of dollars that have been created in this past year. I mean, it just can't happen. I tell people, if it does work, and I'm wrong, that means Americans never have to work again. You know, all we have to do is get on the gravy train, pass out dollars, and tell everybody to produce for us, and we'll pay you for it. Doesn't seem logical, does it? And, you know, Ph.D. in economics have a hard time grasping that, Ron. My, my mother, who went to through her sophomore year in high school, understands it. And when she saw you, uh, some of your remarks on television, she says, you know, Jay, he's the only one that makes any sense. So it's sort of ironic that people with the highest education sometimes have the most difficulty in grasping the most basic truths. 
Uh, you, you mentioned the post-Bretton Woods era in 1971. Of course, that was what I call Bretton Woods II because that's when Nixon took us off the gold standard. Initially, we had an international gold standard when Bretton Woods was first set up. Is this the first time in history that we've that the whole world has been on a fiat system, a non-gold-backed or a non-metal-backed uh, currency system? It's the only one that I know of, and, and it's uh, and as pervasive as it has been. I don't think anything ever comes close. I mean, in the, in the very, very old days, in, in Roman times, and when the world was much smaller, uh, they they had a lot of disruptions. But it wasn't quite as uh, extreme because their inflation and distortions would become with maybe clipping coins or uh, diluting the metal and, and things like that. So there would uh, still be some metal value behind yeah, the currency, and, behind the paper. And, and this time... Uh, I guess we fooled a lot of people for a long time, but we're not fooling them anymore. So that's why people finally found that this was a total house of cards, and the house of cards has collapsed. And now we have to look for the foundation. But the dollar, which I consider a very sand-like foundation, uh, it's not going to work. I don't think we can rebuild this uh, on the dollar again, even though people have parked a lot of money in the dollar. But I sort of think what's going on is... The Fed creates trillions. We're not allowed to monitor them. They're secret. They're beyond any uh, any type of transparency or uh, auditing by the by the by the Congress. I think they pass that money out to foreigners to prop up the dollar, you know, to keep the system going, believing that they can rebuild this. And this week, uh, the G20 is meeting. I think uh, there's a bunch of them there that think they're going to patch it together uh, just by producing more money. The, Federal, the uh, IMF asked for, uh, you know, $250 billion, and we're arguing, no, that's not enough. They need $500 billion. I mean, the whole thing just is so bizarre. That's why I just don't think the answer is going to come very quickly. Ron, uh, the Treasury Secretary of FDR, in fact, uh, said that admitted that the that the New Deal was a was a total failure. He he mentioned after eight years of of the FDR's policies that in fact unemployment was as high then as it had been eight years earlier. And he mentioned that we had this huge amount of debt to boot. Why in the world, if we look back and you know at the 1930s, are we following the same in the same footsteps? Boy, you know, that's, that's the major question. And I think it comes from the uh, delusion of Keynesians. Although Keynesian came in vogue in the 30s, uh, you know, the Keynesian approach of Bernanke and his talking about, uh, you know, to Milton Friedman by saying, um, you know, you were right, Milton Friedman, you were right, the Fed caused the problem, mm. but, you know, we won't, we won't do it again. So to them, they are not repeating it. And I guess, we have to concede to them that they're not repeating everything. They're just doing it more excessively. Yeah. You know, so, yes, they, to us, it hasn't, they haven't changed a thing. So that's why uh, the, they're inflating uh, much, much faster than they, even though they tried to inflate a lot in the Depression, it, it didn't work. But they propped up prices and salaries, and they used government programs and more regulations, and just went on and on. So we're doing all those things in the government management. Uh, but the, the big difference is uh, that in their minds is that they uh, they are massively inflating more than they ever did in the, in the 30s. But to, to answer the question on why do why do governments and peoples repeat the same mistakes? You know, sometimes that's just sort of a mystery. You'd think they'd wake up. Indeed, uh, 
you know, Ed Griffin, um, um, who is the author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, was our first guest on this series. And, you know, Ed spoke of the Federal Reserve. He said that the Federal Reserve, which was created in 1913, uh, has certain stated purposes that uh, have been a total failure. But on the other hand, if you look at the unstated purposes of the Fed, that is to bail out the banks and the the, the very wealthy uh, banking interest in the United States, it's been a total uh, it's been a total success. Uh, I know that you've introduced legislation, I think almost every every term in Congress to um, to get rid of the Federal Reserve, in fact. Um, and, and, and that would be on constitutional grounds, I believe. Is that right, Ron? Yeah, it would be because it's not authorized and uh, it's been argued over the years. But uh, every time it uh, goes to the courts, the courts always rules in favor of the uh, central bank, and that's how uh, how we got here. And the bill that I have that would get rid of the Fed, it's there to make a point. Uh, even I don't advocate getting rid of the Fed tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But the, re- uh, the reason that we have to talk about it is the Fed may end, or the dollar system may end, and if it ends catastrophically, you know, because of the rejection of the dollar, that's a lot worse than coming to our senses. The, another bill that I've just recently introduced is, I, I think, the proper interim step, and that is to open up the books uh, to allow us to know exactly what the Fed is doing. Mm. Everybody has heard in the news how there have been lawsuits filed against the Fed uh, to tell us exactly how much money they created and where, where they sent it. And they just stiff us on it. They just say, no, we don't have to. And they're right under the law. Mm. And I've told, I told them in person, you know, in committee, I say, you know, under the law, you, you don't have to, but under the Constitution, you should. Yeah. You know? And they, they don't tell us a thing. And my bill would be to able to audit the Fed and repeal the portion of the code that says that they're exempt from any auditing. Okay, we're going to have to take a uh, station break here. Uh, Don't go away. We'll be right back with Ron Paul. We're going to talk to him about some more issues uh, that are affecting the economy, the Federal Reserve, and and what you might do both on a personal basis as as, uh, uh, as well as for your country to help get us back on course. We'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, 
Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to jtaylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here again with Congressman Ron Paul. Ron, before the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, Ed Griffin's uh, views of the Federal Reserve and how the Federal Reserve essentially, you know, based on their stated goals, have been a total failure. They were supposed to have sort of, you know, low unemployment, be able to manipulate the money supply to keep inflation low and to keep unemployment at full, full levels. Clearly, you know, we're, we're running up against 10% unemployment now. Um, you know, inflation has been very, very high over the years. The dollar's eroded in its purchasing power very, very significantly since the Federal Reserve came into being. Would you agree with Ed that, in fact, uh, the Federal Reserve has been a failure? I mean, setting aside constitutional issues, which you've, you, you know, you've objected to the Fed on, the, on that basis, what about its, its practical implications? Has the Fed been a success uh, in its stated objectives, uh, I think you would answer no. But then uh, what about its unstated objectives? I mean, would you care to comment on that? I guess uh, it depends on when you ask this question. If we'd have asked this question, you know, 10 years ago, I, I consider this problem that we're dealing with now, the immediate problem, starting with the break of the NASDAQ, and uh, we really haven't had any real growth since then. You're talking about 2000, when the NASDAQ right. was at 5000 and it slipped down to about 1000. Yeah. And never recovered. And never recovered. But, I, right. you know, at that point, you know, they had the recessions coming and going, and there seemed to be a lot of wealth in the country. And they say, well, see, we achieved our objectives. Unemployment is low, and people are wealthy, and we all have fancy televisions, all that. But I would say that would be an illusion, and it wasn't, it was almost in spite of the Fed, because it was deceit in the sense that people were willing to loan us money. We became as a consumer nation, we went into debt, but then those of us who understood Austrian economics knew that it was an illusion. It was all based on debt, and it was all based on, on a financial bubble. So I would consider them, uh, completely, uh, a, a complete failure. Mm-hmm. That, uh, if it appeared that they were successful for a while, even this whole idea of the lender of last resort and all, it's proven that they, that they just can't do it. I mean, they are the source of a great deal of evil. I mean, not only financial, but political evil. Just think of all the things politicians have been encouraged to do because they knew the Fed would back them up. And, you know, whether it's uh, fighting wars overseas or welfare system runaway here at home, all the things that we do encourages big government. And that's the undermining of liberty. So I consider that uh, those individuals who understand it and when other people wake up and realize what's really happened is that our freedoms have been undermined, you can lay a lot of the blame uh, at the door of the Federal Reserve System for this. Well, Ed Griffin suggests that, in fact, uh, the unstated goals of the Federal Reserve, and I'm not sure if you can comment on that if they're not stated, but the unstated goals of the Federal Reserve were essentially to bail out the bankers. We know that in 1907, J.P. Morgan bailed out the banking system, didn't like to do that very much, and really wanted to socialize the risks of the banking industry. Um, and uh, and so from that perspective, uh, Griffin believes that the Fed has been a tremendous success. Well, certainly we're seeing the taxpayer getting hit really hard, and only not, not only now, but far more in the future, to pay for these trillions of dollars that are being created out of nothing 
to uh, to bail out the system. So do you have any comments on, on the Fed? Yeah, well, I have a little more trouble uh, outguessing all their motives. Yeah. And especially since it's over a long period of time, you yeah. know, uh, it, the uh, Fed uh, it came into existence in 1913. The evolution from 1913 up to 71 was not, you know, uh, all of a sudden, it was gradual. They change reserves. They would go to uh, Bretton Woods, and then that would break down. So uh, I I don't know even if those were the unintended goals stated in 1913. Mm-hmm. Most of them weren't around to find out whether it was going to work or not. But I I see it more based on uh, uh, bad ideas. I, I think there's a a lot of people who are well intended, but there's a lot of people also that want to bail out, you know, and believing. And then they rationalize and say, yeah, we got to be taken care of. Why do we pass all this stuff in Washington? And uh, do the liberals always preach that you want to take care of rich bankers on Wall Street? And, and all? No, they don't preach that at all. Yeah. But all of a sudden they, they say, well, you know, the little guy is going to be hurt too. We yeah. have to keep the system together. So I, I think uh, the greatest uh, harm has been uh, just people who have – really misunderstanding uh, of how this works and that just invites people who will manipulate the system and and, bene- and, and to their benefit not necessarily evil intent but just a misunderstanding to a great extent i think i would be i think i would agree with that because i certainly know a lot of people on wall street who are who are not bad people per se they definitely believe that this is the right policy and it's for the good of the nation if my neighbor's house is for sale and nobody buys it why if you know he can't he can't uh, finance the mortgage then it's better if the government socializes it so that my house values don't. Well, Jay, I bet you you've run into people who have been in banking business. I know I have. If you talk to them about monetary policy and, and the Federal Reserve and the financial system, they hardly know anything about it. But they're technicians. You know, they know how to take deposits and shift things around, but they're really not much into uh, how fraction reserve banking is uh, undermining the system at all. They're just very good technicians rather than, than understanding how how international banking really works. Right. I'd like to switch a little bit to uh, more investor-related questions, you know, as as one who picks stocks and tries to do well for my own family and for my subscribers to my newsletter, one of the main concerns I have is whether our system is inflating or deflating. We've seen uh, quite a bit of deflation in the financial assets. I mean, a lot of deflation in the financial assets with the Dow below half of where it was at its peak. At a dinner in San Francisco back in November 2007, I recall asking both you and Mark Faber whether we might get another Paul Volcker at the Fed as we had in 1980. I mean, that's when the system was still inflating back there in, in 2007. Volcker slowed the money supply drastically uh, such that my first mortgage back in 1981 was a 17.5% mortgage. Both Mark and you thought that that was politically impossible, that we weren't going to see another Paul Volcker rise uh, anytime soon. So do you still see rising levels of inflation as inevitable at this stage, or is it possible that the deflationary forces may be so strong that they simply cannot be overcome by for quite a while until massive amounts of debt is written off of the books, as in fact happened in the 1930s? You know, we went from 1929 until World War II, essentially, in a depression, and I would argue that, I, that the World War II, maybe, you know, some people argue that was the effective stimulus that caused us to grow again, but I would argue that the main thing that took place during that time was that Massive amounts of debt was worked off the books, and that made it possible for regrowth of the economy. Uh, what are your thoughts? Are, are we yeah. destined yeah, to have I, I, a lot of inflation? Um, and if so, how soon might we see that? 
Yeah, I think conditions are a lot different. I think you're right that debt was liquidated during the war, but after the war, they cut spending by two-thirds and taxes by one-third, so that had a lot to do with it, too. But the liquidation debt was important. I think the uh, reason why we have this uh, continuous uh, debate is uh, even within our own camp, we have different perceptions of what we're talking about when we talk about inflation or deflation. And I take a very strict definition of it, and I just look to the money supply. And uh, the consumer price index sometimes goes up, sometimes goes down uh, with inflation. During the 20s, uh, and there was no price inflation, but there was a lot of inflation because the money supply was going up and there was uh, a distortion. But, uh, no, I don't think... I don't think too many people who are believers in inflation are too shocked or are surprised to see tremendous amount of liquidation of debt, which to some people they call that deflation. Mm-hmm. But uh, now if, if, if Bernanke had not really, really pumped uh, and just allowed bankruptcies to occur, uh, then, then the money supply might have shrunk, which it did, yeah, yeah. you know, to a degree in the depression. But the money supply is not shrinking, uh, but people are feeling less rich. Uh, their wealth has been, been shrinking, but they weren't all that wealthy to begin with. So I would say we have inflation in, in the soon prices will start rising. Prices are rising in medical care and food right now. So I expect inflation to continue, but, but there certainly is, uh, deflation of value in the financial instruments. Do you see a, a, a danger of hyperinflation? Could things get so out of hand that we have a, a German Weimar Republic situation on our hands? I keep thinking that we're not that stupid and that we just print, out, print money, but right now I think the more unemployment there is, that will never cut unemployment checks. We have a vehicle today, which we didn't have in the 30s, to pass out money, mm. uh, and that is uh, you know, through Social Security and pay for the medical care and unemployment benefits. Uh, they, they, didn't, they couldn't quite do it like that in the 30s, but right now they will not hesitate for a minute uh, to not pass out money. Uh, Bernanke said he'd use helicopters, but of course that's a cliche. In a way, it, it will be passed out, so that's why I, I expect uh, the value of the dollar to go down. So as long as you see the money supply growing, uh, the value has to go down. And right now, it's, it's sort of the uh, velocity of money or the propensity for people to spend the money. People are reluctant. Uh, even wealthy people who have a lot of money in the bank, they say, I don't know what's going to happen next year, so I'm not going to spend my money. So yeah. once that attitude changes, and that's a psychological point, and that is what you can't predict. You think as, that, but that will come as long as you keep printing the money. So, so do you think if, they're, if they uh, hand out money, say, to the lower income groups, the middle income people, that they will spend that money if there's transfer checks sent out to the masses, that that is a way they could kickstart things and get things to to move again. Yeah, well, maybe in a negative sense because yeah. uh, if they have if they pass out enough money and and people have to live, what we'll, we'll do if if they have to have housing and they have to have energy and they have to have food, uh, it, it's just going to push prices up. That's when I think you will get more uh, moving in the in the direction of uh, the Zimbabwe situation where. Prices are going up in the midst of a recession or depression, so you can have inflationary depression. Yeah. So if we continue on this course, that's what I would expect, uh, an inflationary depression. Right now, we're, I don't, uh, we don't have true deflation, although, like we see, we see prices going down in stocks and people feel less wealthy, but there's still a lot of money out there. 
Ron, the, uh, you know, our show is titled uh, Turning Hard Times into Good Times. We've talked about a lot of gloom and doom here. We're almost out of time. But your most recent book, The Revolution, A Manifesto, my goodness, when I mentioned that word to my friend Al Corlin, we were speaking on the radio the other day, he sort of shuddered. People don't like to hear about revolutions. <laughs> but we had one back in 1776, and it was a good one. Um, you're calling for a revolution, I guess a revolution of thought, not necessarily, I'm sure you don't want a violent revolution, you want a revolution of thinking that, that would bring people back to the Constitution. So what can people do, what can individuals do for themselves as well as to try to do their small part to help the nation get back on course? What, what would you suggest? Well, uh, it, it's tough because the government has messed things up so badly and we don't have a, a good currency to work with and they've interfered with. Uh, the, the system we're just willing to work doesn't solve our problem. People should still think about how, what kind of a service they can provide for their neighbors and their friends in order to make a living, whether you can uh, live on a farm or a mechanic or provide some worthwhile service to people. So that's number one, to have that and take care of oneself and take care of one's family. Mm-hmm. My second on the list is is really trying to straighten out the mess. I've invested a lot of time and money and energy into saying that if we do the right things, we don't have to worry about these kind of problems. And that, of course, is is education. But then other people have to try to protect against inflation, and and uh, and, and they can't if they can't change the government overnight, which we can't. Then I say, well, if I if I personally believe the dollar is going down, I think uh, people should own real hard assets, and I believe this for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I've been buying gold and silver since gold was $35 an ounce, and there were a few years where it didn't look like it uh, made a lot of sense. But when you think about the last 100 years, it used to be $20 an ounce, almost $1,000 an ounce. So I would say the trend is pretty definite. I had somebody from the house floor the other day come over and said, tell me what to do, Ron. What am I supposed to do on my investments? Because you can't buy these stocks and i got to do something. And he says, it's too late to buy gold. And I said, well, I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd say that. <laughs> because I said, if you, want, if you think it's too late, that means you have confidence that we in the Congress uh, will quit spending excessively and we're going to run up any debt. And he just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, maybe you're right. <laughs> Well, I hear that all the time, too, Ron. People think it's too late to buy gold, but given what you were saying the government's going to do and their insatiable desire to inflate, I have to say I I don't agree with that at all. I think gold is going to go much higher. And In fact, the purchasing power of gold has been rising very dramatically. If you look at gold, it will buy three times more oil than it would have bought before the Lehman Brothers collapse. Actually, we're out of time, folks. Ron, I'm so sorry. I wish we had another, another half hour, an hour or two to talk with you. You always have so much to say. I want to thank you so much for sharing your precious time. I know it's not easy for you these days to, to sacrifice this time, uh, but it's so much appreciated, and I know that people who listen to this show are going to really enjoy your comments and benefit from them. All the best to you and your family, and God's blessings to you, Ron. Thank you, Jay. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. 
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down. I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Sign up for Jay's newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks at www.miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, I'm really honored today to say our special guest is Robert Prechter, a name synonymous with Elliott Wave Analysis, I think, for many years. Robert has written 13 books on finance, beginning with Elliott Wave Principles in 1978, and that predicted the 1920s-style stock market boom. His 2002 book, Conquer the Crash, predicted the current crisis. Prechter's latest interest is a new approach to social science, which he outlined in Socioeconomics, the Science of History and Social Prediction, published in 2003. In July 2007, the journal Behavioral Finance published the Financial Economic Dichotomy, a Socioeconomic Perspective. It's a paper written by Prechter and his colleague, Dr. Wayne Parker. Prechter has made uh, presentations on socioeconomic theory to London School of Economics, Georgia Tech, MIT, SUNY, and at academic conferences. Welcome, Robert, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, it's good to be here. Uh, how's your show going? I heard your, um, your listeners are up. It's doing very well, Robert. We're very pleased, and thanks to people like you who uh, who are willing to come on the show. We've had a lot of very interesting people on this show. Uh, Ron Paul, uh, David Tice is coming on pretty soon. Mark Faber, um, Catherine Austin Fitz, Ed Griffin, and and a host of people. So uh, there is a lot of uh, there is a thirst for information outside of the mainstream. What we're getting uh, on CNBC. Um, Bloomberg and the like, although there is a lot of good information there, too. We hear you once in a while there and a few other people. But for the most part, I think most people feel somewhat deprived of of the truth. And, um, you know, what we're trying to get at here is is the truth. And, I, I you know, I, I think we all have our own biases, so I'm cautious of, of saying that, you know, I'm any better than anyone else in that regard, but at least I don't think we have the conflicted interest that some other in, some other institutions may have in that regard. So, uh, a basic premise of this show then is that um, in order to protect ourselves and to understand what is really going on, we do need to get to that truth. That's that's the reason uh, that we have people like you on here. Uh, many of the people that we've had on this show, I just mentioned Ian Gordon, David Tice, Mark Faber, Ron Paul, uh, Catherine Austin Fitz and the like, are really sort of Austrian economic thinkers. Uh, do you consider yourself in that light or, or maybe in part uh, an Austrian thinker? Very much so. Yes, I, I think the ideas of the Austrians uh, are correct in that fiat money and central banking creates credit booms and busts, and that we're all better off without them. Honest money is the best way to go, and that's uh, historically has always been gold. Well, that may explain why we don't see you on CNBC more often. <laughs> well, you know, few people know CNBC started as FNN, 
And uh-huh. Financial News Network used to interview technicians almost yes. all day long, and they had uh, fringe economists and all sorts of very interesting people, but they have definitely become mainstream. You know, well, as you say, they still have uh, a lot of great content, but it's different. Let's put it, it that way. So that leaves a, an opening for you. Well, we worry a lot about bad hair days and the like on CNBC, I think. So instead of some of these more serious issues sometimes. But anyway, I'd like to focus a lot on Conquer the Crash, your latest, well, I guess it's not your latest book. It's the latest book I was familiar with and I am familiar with, Conquer the Crash, which was published in 2002. It was about that same time that we, after the stock market decline in 2000, from 2000 on, that there started to be a lot of concern among our mainstream about deflation. Uh, you know, the, the the Japanese experience is fresh in the minds of some of our policymakers, and uh, Ben Bernanke wrote a paper in 2002, or he gave a speech, uh, deflation, making sure it doesn't happen here. And he was, you know, quite convinced that he had studied the 1930s and understood that uh, the problems and the reasons that the 1930s drug on and on, and he provided uh, his thoughts about how we could, well, his thoughts about how we could conquer the crash, if I might use that term, <laughs> Basically, no, he was going to prevent shower more money into the economy and and use heli- using helicopters if necessary. Well, you obviously, I don't think, as an Austrian thinker, really buy into that notion. So, um, the question I'd like to ask is for those listeners who may not have read your book, Conquer the Crash. Can you share your major theme, the major theme of that book, if you would, please? Well, just to. Uh follow up on one thing you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Bernanke essentially was saying he would prevent a crash, and I can guarantee that 2008 was one big surprise to him. Uh-huh. And I think 2010 is going to be an even bigger one. But the theme of my book is very simple. I, I think that markets move on waves of optimism and pessimism, that this social mood, the fluctuation in social mood, essentially govern uh, the characteristics of social behavior, and that's behavior in all kinds of realms, the financial behavior, people buying and sell or selling stocks, the economic realm, people in an uptrend in, in positive mood will expand their businesses, and you'll see the economic numbers get better. The opposite happens on the way down. It also shows up in fads and fashions and movies and uh, television themes and all kinds of other areas. If you can get a good handle on when people are extremely optimistic, you can uh, get a feeling that you're near a top, and if when they're extremely pessimistic, you're near a bottom. But even more important, the model that we use was developed by Ralph Nelson Elliott in the 1930s. He was the man who, who first said that financial prices move in fractal form. In other words, the same structures that happen on the very short term happen on the intermediate term and the long term. And the reason I wrote Conquer the Crash was in 2000, uh, we completed, or the stock market completed, a series of waves all the way from the depression lows of 1932. And it meant that we had reached a peak of optimism going back seven, se- seven decades. Mm. That's a very long time. It said we're going to have a commensurate bear market. It took a long time to get going because of our fiat money that uh, clouded the issue. But I think it's well underway and has been actually for, for uh, nine years. Mm. So you see a cycle similar to what uh, our grandparents went through in the 30s, exactly. a down cycle. Although, um, this one's bigger. One thing about cycles, the uh, Kondratiev cycle, for example, doesn't really distinguish in terms of degree. Everyone is described roughly the same. And, and at least with Elliott Waves, you get an, an occasional idea that one will be larger or smaller than another. For example, the very late 1800s, there was a Kondratiev low 
but it was very mild because in wave terms it was near the end of a, of a third wave uh, and in the middle of a very large advance it was not very large degree. The, the early 30s was much larger degree, very much like the early 1840s. This time around it's the same degree that uh, accompanied the, the collapse after the South Sea bubble. And if you know your stock history, you know the stocks didn't make a new high for almost uh, 80 or 90 years after wow. the South Sea bubble. So this is a big one. Wow. This is, is it comparable then? And uh, I've heard this, the terminology grand super cycle instead of just a super cycle. Would you turn that, term this then a grand super cycle? Yes. I think that is the kind of top that we've been building for the last 10 years. So a magnitude worse than potentially from what our grandparents experienced. That's correct. And I think you can see it even in the buildup in credit. It's way, it dwarfs what we had in the 1920s. The extremity in, in overvaluation in the stock market dwarfs the 1920s. At the top day in 1929, uh, the Dow yielded 2.8% in dividends. This time it was at 1.4% in 2000 before the market finally topped out. Everything wow. you look at tells me that our, our interpretation of this being a larger degree is correct. Wow. Um... Well, you, you do pay a lot of attention to, uh, to valuations in markets and moods, as you said, and uh, I guess you're looking for, you know, to, to counter those moves so that when people get overly optimistic, you're looking to, to short the market and vice versa. But in Chapter 6 of your book, you talked about, uh, div- talked about uh, valuations using tools like dividend yields, P.E. ratios, book value, etc., and you discover uh, you you really discussed the significance of uh, high stock market valuations and in that chapter you also showed a couple of charts that demonstrated recent stock market valuations were in extreme high levels compared with the past in fact the stock market was valued at a level that was roughly three times the level of the dow before the 29 crash i guess that's basically what you're what you're just saying right in dividend terms uh, even in pe terms and of course the pe today is even higher well, we've had two major stock market uh, declines since 2000. Given those declines, you're still seeing that, though. Even at this point in time, we're still very, very overvalued. Tremendously overvalued. The optimism uh, on an intermediate-term basis is, again, extreme. So I think this is the third top in the last 10 years. Well, applying those, those same yardsticks, then, um, so where do we go from here? I mean, the market's generally over shoot on the upside and undershoot or, or overshoot on the downside as well, do they not? What do you see for the, uh, say, for the Dow Jones near term, longer term? What are you calling for? Okay. Well, um, last February, third week of February, we said, look, we're coming into the bottom of the fifth wave. Uh, this is going to complete the first wave down on a major trend, and we're, we should get a rally back to anywhere between 9,000 and 10,000 on the Dow. So, for a normal rally, I think we've reached the upper end of that range. Uh, there's nothing that can prevent the market from having a much deeper retracement. It's, uh, it's retraced about 45% or maybe 47% of the decline from 2007 to early 2009. Sometimes you'll get retracements of 50 or even 60%. I'm not betting on it because the, the optimism is so, is so extreme here. Um, but many readings are just as extreme as they were in 2000 um, or in 2007. This wow. is classic wave two behavior because people always believe at the bottom of wave one that the wave two rally is the resumption of a new bull market. Mm-hmm. We had something similar to that following the 1929 crash. I'm sure you know that from November to April 1930 there was a substantial rally. 
portrays 52% of the crash. But then we started two years down that were much worse than the crash. I think that this market is in that type of position, that we're ready to start another wave down. It's going to break the March lows by a substantial amount, probably last several years. Uh, what would it take uh, if we bounced up, let's say, 67% off the bottom or something? I mean, would there be a level that the equity markets rose to which you would say, well, I was wrong and, you know, I've got my wave count wrong and we're, and we're going to, um, you know, and there's no major decline? Would something like, I mean, what would, theoretically, what would you need to see to convince you you're wrong about this? Well, the main thing I'd need to see is some kind of change in the indicators. Uh, or the wave structure. So far, we've had what I would consider a corrective wave structure on the upside if that turned impulsive that might uh, affect the way I think. But I can't imagine it happening because we'd also have to get dividend yield up to 6 or 7%. We'd have to get PE down to 7. It's currently 100. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't imagine a situation where this does not uh, end as a partial retracement, in other words, a bear market rally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to put my imagination, your imagination to work, if I could, just for a second. Um, Going back to 1971, Richard Nixon took us off the international gold standard, and from that time we can see the monetary aggregates just surging, just exploding almost, um, and, of course, accelerating almost exponentially now. Would we still have the same kind of severe market gyrations if Nixon hadn't done that back in 1971? Oh, well, Nixon didn't have a choice because the government was continuing to spend and borrow, uh, and the banking system was continuing to create credit. So the the value of dollars and IOU dollars outstanding was falling and falling and falling. I mean, once once, uh, Roosevelt took us off the gold standard, the Nixon's move was inevitable. It would have happened even if his name wasn't Nixon. So... I don't think his action caused anything. I think his action was a result okay. of decisions made earlier. So larger sociological uh, forces at work. In other words, Nixon, in theory, it seems, could have raised taxes to pay for Vietnam and to pay for um, Lyndon Johnson's uh, Great Society. Could he not have? Oh, I suppose any one of our uh, political people could have done that since we went on, since we created the Fed. But, of course, they found it much more convenient just to borrow the money um, or to essentially print it by having the Fed buy that debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, as we all know, they're going to take the easiest way, right? That's how you get reelected. Well, yeah, they wouldn't have, perhaps he wouldn't have been elected if he had taken that or reelected. Anyway, um, so if I understand your um, your thesis is that these larger sociological factors really sweep the policymakers up, and they don't really have a choice in the matter. Oh, well, as individuals, they have a choice, but the ones that people elect, you see, mm-hmm. are going to be the ones that, that fit the mood. Sure. So when they want uh, someone who's going to uh, represent the way they feel, that's the person who gets elected. People have often said to me, for example, well, what, what would have happened if Ronald Reagan had gotten elected four years earlier? And my answer is, well, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he got elected when people thought they wanted him. Right. Um, but here's something interesting. Yeah. It's, the policies of these people, I think, ultimately uh, is, is not the cause of their election or failure to be elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, people say, oh, well, Reagan pulled us out of the problems of the 70s, and he was a conservative. He lowered taxes, and that's why we were 
so successful. But we elected a socialist in 1932, Franklin Roosevelt, and the market had a five times move in five years, the fastest run-up it had ever had. Right. So, and, and, of course, when we threw out a conservative, well, somewhat of a conservative, when after Bush's second term and elected a, a liberal, the whole idea was we wanted change. We wanted change because we, we weren't feeling good. The markets were down. We wanted a new guy. New Zealand did the opposite. They threw out a liberal and put in a conservative, in fact, a mm-hmm. financial guy. Mm-hmm. So, so the whole point was voters wanted to change the leadership, right. but they're not, unfortunately, in the aggregate, smart enough to know what kind of political uh, structure they really want. It's just mm-hmm. that, well, I want change. Right. Change for change's sake without thinking it through very deeply. Right. Uh, in Chapter 11, you raised the question, what makes deflation likely today? And the mainstream media appears confident that Mr. Bernanke and Obama uh, have everything under control. So what does make deflation today assuming that's still what you believe, and I, and I believe it is, what makes it inevitable today, even as trillions of new dollars are being pumped into the economy? Well, actually, uh, they have pumped a trillion uh, new dollars into the economy. The, mm-hmm. When you add an S, what you're talking about is not new money, but new uh, debt. Mm-hmm. So the amount of debt outstanding, depending on how you count it, is somewhere between $50 trillion and $250 trillion worth. Those are IOU dollars, and there are only $2 trillion actually in the world right now. Mm-hmm. So I think what's going to happen is this uh, tremendous amount of IOU dollars uh, will found to be worthless. People will not be able to, to scrape up the actual dollars to pay off these debts. And, even, and so I think that implosion already last year, I think we saw evidence of that, can happen far faster than the authorities can create new money. And not only that, but as debt is destroyed, even if people say, oh, well, it, you know, they're going to monetize a lot of this debt, that still is nothing but break-even. Mm-hmm. In order to get net inflation, they would have to print more money that you're, ha- that you're losing on the, on the credit side, mm-hmm. and they're not doing that. So it and I don't seems, think they will either. It seems as though, I mean, in theory at least, you could just simply hand out huge amounts of money to, to the lower and middle classes and just let her rip. And overcome. Yeah, but where do you get it? Uh, you either bo- what they've been doing for the most part is they're either borrowing it, which means they're pulling it out of the banking system and pulling it out of other investors. Um, Couldn't you literally just print it and hand it out? Yeah, but they're not doing that. No, they're not doing that. No. You don't think there's any chance they would do that? Oh, there's a chance, but the government is always late. The mm-hmm. government has never anticipated a problem in its history. Yeah, it always reacts. Remember the laws they passed in 1934 that were to, to rein in the banks and, and straighten out the brokerage firms? Mm-hmm. The, the entire collapse was over. Even the recession had already hit, uh, depression had already hit bottom. And finally, you know, two years later, they, they put out, uh, oh, well, let's fix the crash. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, man, it's too late. It's over. So by the time they get around to figuring out that they need to print actual dollars, um, I, I think the de- deflation will have run its course. I think the swiftness of it is going to shock people. And I think we'll find out the FDIC cannot handle uh, 2,000, 3,000 closed banks at the same time, and it's going to be a real mess. And that's why I'm recommending that people get whatever money they have outside of the banking system, mm-hmm. uh, for the most part, and either into safe U.S.-only money market funds mm-hmm. or liquid banks uh, overseas, private banks overseas that have not gotten caught up in Mm-hmm. In, um, in issuing so many mortgages, mm-hmm. uh, and as I said, in conquer the crash, some gold and some bags of silver coins as well. And that's you pro- it. You want money. You don't want investments. Do you provide some of those ideas in your newsletter, Robert? Sure. Oh, every okay. month. So we'll. 
Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I believe you're bearish on gold, perhaps, and, and I would like to ask you in nominal terms or in real terms. In other words, in theory, it's possible the price of gold could go down, and yet its purchasing power still increase. But uh, you have a reputation, I think, for being somewhat bearish on gold. Is that so? Yeah, and I'm I'm pretty proud of that because mm-hmm. for 30 years, 29 years, it hasn't gone anywhere, net-net. There were so many better things to do with your money since 1980. Sure. Uh, that, sure. And silver, of course, you've lost money in dollar terms since 1980. It's probably mm-hmm. the worst investment there's been in the last 29 years. Uh-huh. So I think that's been the right stance. Now, in late 2001... Uh, I turned bullish. In fact, on the bottom day, I printed an article by Barron's mm-hmm. uh, that was bearish across the board. Mm-hmm. Now, I didn't stay with that as, as long as I should, ha- should have. And in Conquer the Crash, I said, look, you want to own some gold, and you want to own it now. I think it was still under in the 300s at that time. But I wasn't you know, someone who said, look, you want to put your whole portfolio into gold. It's all a real money game. Mm-hmm. And the reason is that when this deflation really gets serious, people are going to sell everything in order to, to raise the dollars they need to pay off their IOUs. Mm-hmm. And the time to buy gold is when people don't want it, as mm-hmm. in 1999 or 2001. Today, everybody thinks gold is a great investment after it's gone up four times in value. Mm-hmm. We've got 91% of traders bullish on it. Only 3% of the traders are bullish on the dollar. I think we're going to have a giant move in the other direction in both of these markets. Well, that's very interesting, uh, Robert. You mentioned... Uh, uh, a few minutes ago, uh, the Kondratia cycle, and I have a very good friend on the line with us here today. Uh, he is Ian Gordon, who was mentioned in your book, Conquering the Crash, and Ian is known for his Kondratia work, and um, so I'd like to ask Ian uh, if he has a question or two for you, for uh, Robert. Ian, are you there? I am. It's a great honor to be here. Well, uh, it's Robert, great to be talking uh, to you, and I'm going to anticipate your question. Talk. <laughs> um, I'm a, a Big believer in your work and a subscriber to to your letter. I just bought uh, your latest book, Chronicles of um, Is it Chronicles of the Crash? The big, big oh, the Mania book. Chronicles. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I think one of the things that I, you know, one of the things I've done in the Kondratia cycle is to show that you know gold doesn't work in the autumn of the cycle because stocks do, and that in the winter, I believe gold works because nothing else really does because it works really in the form of cash. Uh, Could you comment on that? Yes. Uh, First of all, we agree that what people want in the winter portion is cash. Mm -hmm. They suddenly panic about everything else and they realize, oh my gosh, I'm really truly broke. I need to save. I need to get money somehow. Um, Now, what's interesting to me, or at least my view of things, is we haven't really tested the current system. This is the first time we've had only fiat money. Back in the early 30s, uh, we had a fixed dollar uh, and a fixed price of gold. Uh, in prior Kondratiev wave bottoms, such as the uh, 1840s, uh, 50s, and again uh, in the late 1800s, we only had one money, and it was defined as a certain number of grains of gold. That's what the dollar meant. So gold did well because it was our money during those periods. And gold did well in the early 30s because it was fixed by the government. It was the only investment that was not falling because the government said, we're going to guarantee its price at 21.67 per ounce. Uh, today, the, the government does not fix the price of gold. So to me, it's trading in the free market at a completely worldwide determined fair value. So whatever gold is right now is what everybody thinks it ought to be worth. Um, so the question is, are people viewing uh, gold more and more as money? And I think they're beginning to do that. 
Or are we so stuck in a fiat money system that gold is going to be one of the items that people uh, reluctantly sell, but nevertheless sell uh, when the deflation is on? And I'm of the latter mind. I think that people have lived in a dollar world or a, or a yen world or a euro world, and all of their finances, everything they owe, the contracts they have written, for example, all say, you must pay me in dollars or one of those other currencies. This is what we have a shortage of and what people are going to be uh, trying to get at all costs in order to pay off these debts and what the creditors are going to demand because they can't demand gold from anybody. They can only demand the dollars. Mm-hmm. But people are going to have to get them, and we have a trillion dollars in cash currency, and we have a trillion dollars in reserves that the Fed has created in the last, what, eight, nine months, which is a tremendous amount of new money, but still is very, very small compared to the amount that everyone owes each other. So I still think that in the worst of the deflationary period, gold will go down. But I have said many, many times it's going to go down way less than stocks, okay. way less than most other commodities, because it has gone up the least in this cycle, number one, and number two, because it is ultimately money, it's the only money, and some people who are wealthy enough are going to be moving their money into gold. So I'm in favor of having some. Mm-hmm. I just disagree with the people who say it's going to go to $20,000 an ounce because we're going into hyperinflation. I think sure. we're going into deflation. Very good. That's a good point. And Actually, what I hear you saying, I think, is that gold in real terms and its purchasing power could actually increase vis-a-vis most things. But I guess you're, you're uh, believing that, that paper or cash uh, will, be, uh, will be stronger than gold then. Exactly, for a period. Now, gold has been stronger, um, has been stronger during this reflationary period. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had a setback when everything else crashed in 2008. And I think that proves my point, because when we got into real deflation, gold went down. It didn't go down much because it didn't go up. Like, platinum went up seven times, and copper went up seven mm-hmm. times, and mm-hmm. uranium went up 20 times, uh, and, he, and uh, oil went up 14 times. Gold only went up four. So it came down less. It's now the only thing in the world at a new high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the reason is that because it didn't get so uh, bulled up during that superinflation in the middle of this decade. But you know what? Time will tell, and it's fine to own. You know, I, I'm an advocate of gold. <laughs> I like it. I just want to buy it at the best possible price. Well, that, that makes, certainly makes a lot of sense to do that. Uh, I, I guess uh, looking back at history, and I think, Ian, if you're there, you might comment on this, but I think we've seen over the last 100 years or so when the Dow Jones has bottomed, we've seen something close to a one-to-one Dow-to-gold ratio. So I'm just wondering if there might not be some more upside, and I guess what you're saying, suggesting is compared to stocks, there there could very well be some more upside for gold. Ian, are you there? Uh, yeah, sorry. What, um, what are your well, thoughts, again, Ian? I'm, We've had this know, one-to-one I'm ratio belief, of Robert, gold. That, that, uh, I, I'm a little more bullish on the stock market than you are, you are because I've got Dow 1,000 as my target. <laughs> and what, and what is yours, Robert, your, your target for the Dow at the bottom? Uh, I'm saying triple digits, so, yeah, I guess I'm a little more bearish than that. Okay. And, and, but and I'm I picking agree. Dow 1,000 simply because it was a, a point of, you know, major resistance for the Dow to really get sure. through that number. But, um, uh, and I'm picking a target for gold of 4,000, so I'm saying that ultimately it'll take a quarter of an ounce of gold to buy the Dow Jones at the bottom. And I, one thing I think is that the people who own gold don't have the debt that you are alluding to. 
So I think that people who have been purchasing gold are the people who are really trying to protect themselves by buying gold as, you know, as a form of cash because they don't trust paper. Um, well, that could very well be the case. You know, um, uh, who knows for sure which way this thing is going to go, and I guess that's uh, what makes life interesting, isn't it? We, nobody knows for sure, but I do, I do very much respect the work of, of uh, you, Robert Prechter, and Ian Gordon, and, and various other people we've had on our shows, uh, and we thank you both for being with us today. Uh, we are about upon our station break now, our commercial break. Uh, coming back at the, uh, at the end of the break, we're going to talk to Chen Lin, and we're going to summarize the markets from our perspective. In just a few minutes. Don't go away. We'll be right back. <laughs> 